This is a series we've been in as a church the last few weeks, and if you would like to know more about it, you can go back on our church website or download the church app and, and listen to any of the messages. We've been looking at characters who encountered the literal cross of Jesus and how their lives have been changed, and today we're going to look at a story that's found in the Gospel of John. There's four uh, recordings of the life and the, the death of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to open up in our Bibles to the book of John today to look at what the Apostle John had to write about the last events of Jesus' life. So I'm going to read from John chapter 19, starting with verse 38. It says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, at the cross of Jesus, the disciples were afraid to be seen. John was the only apostle that was even seen around the cross. And if you remember Peter, he was the one who said, Jesus, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will never fail you. And yet Peter denied Jesus not only once, twice, but three times. And it's not an apostle that comes to ask for the body of Jesus. It's a secret disciple named Joseph. Joseph and his friend Nicodemus. They, they come to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus because they want to honor him with a dignified burial. And Joseph had purchased this burial place. It had never been used before. It very likely would have been for his own body. And yet he chose to bury the body of Jesus there. And you and I are so grateful for that, you may not realize how that changed the Easter story. Because typically, someone who'd been hung on a cross and who died would have been someone that the society didn't really care about. And they would have thrown the body into the city dump outside of Jerusalem, a place called the Valley of Gehenna, a place where garbage continued to burn day and night. Jesus referred to the Valley of Gehenna as a picture of hell. And that's where Jesus would have risen from the dead. But instead of that, because of Joseph, we have the empty tomb, we have the stone that was rolled away, we have the angels at the garden. It's a beautiful Easter scene. Now Nicodemus comes with him, and Nicodemus has with him 75 pounds of spices and, and linen because they're going to wrap the body of Jesus and prepare it for burial. They didn't do what we do today when people die. They didn't have the processes, so they, they wrapped the bodies with aromatic spices so it would cover up the stench of decay. Now, Joseph and Nicodemus both are what are called Pharisees. Pharisees were religious leaders. If you had asked people of Jesus' day, who were religious people, they would say, of course, the Pharisees. They're, they're full-time religious people. They looked the part, act the part, dressed the part, and they were all about rules. They loved to follow the commands of God, and they took it to an extreme to where when God says things like, keep the Sabbath day holy, they actually would, would develop sub-laws underneath that. Things like this. How many steps could you take on the Sabbath before it became work? How many letters would you be free to write until your handwriting became work on the Sabbath and you broke the law? Now, it reminds me of what's happening in football today. Like, nobody really knows what a catch is anymore. You know, did he, did he make these steps? Did the ball move? Did, were your hands in the right position? And we just say, it looked like a catch to me. It was pretty obvious. And these guys got so wrapped into the rules that they missed sight of the bigger picture, which was to serve God. Now, I used to teach children. 
I was a children's pastor, and an easy way to remember the Pharisees, because Pharisees always wanted to be right, was they wanted to be fair, you see. Pharisees. And, and they were different from a group called the Sadducees, because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels or the afterlife, and they were sad, you see. Now, the kids will remember that forever. You guys think it's corny, but I, I'm telling you, you'll never, ever forget that. Well, Nicodemus is here with, with Joseph. And John says that he was the one who came to visit Jesus at night. I want to go back in time to look at that visit because at that time of Jesus' ministry, as he was going around teaching and, and healing and casting out demons, the religious leaders became very suspicious of his message. And they became jealous of his popularity. They didn't like the fact that Jesus hung around questionable people, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. So Nicodemus goes on a reconnaissance mission to find out who this guy really is. So in John chapter 3, he writes, There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, it sounds respectable. He's, he's validating what Jesus has done. But Jesus isn't impressed with the flattery. In fact, Jesus turned the tables, turns the tables and says, this isn't going to be about me. This conversation is going to be about you. Because Jesus replied in verse 3, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's shocking. Nicodemus is an insider. He's, he's one of God's special people, he thought. And yet Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you're outside the kingdom of God. Now what is this thing called the kingdom of God? Where is it? What does it look like? It's not a physical kingdom, and it will be one day, but right now it's not a physical kingdom that has brick walls and, and an army and a castle in the middle. It's not like you'd see in TV shows or movies or, or the game, game of Thrones or things like that. It's an invisible kingdom. But this kingdom is, is really about people, people who's chosen to live their lives under the authority of God. Because Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, said, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. That, that's what his kingdom is, is doing the will of God. And in order to do the will of God, you have to be born again because it doesn't come naturally. See, you and I have this problem called sin. And sin is exactly opposite of doing the will of God. It's opposing the will of God in our lives. It's, it's being contrary to God's purposes. And we live in a culture that is vastly different from God's desires. In fact, I look at the culture like a raging river that's going away from God and pulling everyone in it with them. And in order to follow God, you have to fight culture. And to give you an example of this, and some of you have lived long enough to see it, when I was a kid and we'd watch TV, the only time you saw people in bed was a mom and a dad in separate beds with their pajamas on. And you think of how far we've come in 40 years. You don't even see moms and dads in bed anymore. You see people with other people, not married people. And we see it all over. We see it in, in, in how people are exposed. I mean, I saw a commercial the other day of Victoria's Secret on, in between a basketball game. And I think back when I was a kid, those kind of images that were on the TV during prime time would have been on a magazine that was covered in the, on the shelf behind the drugstore um, counter. Remember that? The language we use today, the language we even hear from sometimes political candidates, is stuff we never would have allowed our kids to say. 
And I look at our culture of how addicted we are to, uh, to drugs and prescription medications and recreational drugs. It's like, I'm not happy. I need to find something else to fill this void in my life. I mean, we live in the most prosperous nation in the, in the best time of history. And yet, I, everywhere I look, I find people who are overwhelmed, angry, disappointed, lonely, broken. And, and we realize that we can't fix it. If we could, we would, but we can't. And so we have to have something supernatural happen to us, and that's called the new birth, what Jesus is saying here, being born again. And so Nicodemus is struggling to grasp this concept. He says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I mean, Nicodemus is, is very puzzled. He doesn't understand this concept of being born again. I imagine he's thinking, like, how am I going to talk to my mother about going back into her womb and being born a second time? This is not going to be a good conversation. But Jesus says, no, no, that's physical birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, something that's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. I was really windy a couple days ago. And if, when I looked outside, I could not tell the color of the wind. In fact, I couldn't even tell it was windy, except for the fact that I could hear the howling along the window. I could see snow blowing horizontally and trees bending. And I says, it is really windy outside. You can tell wind by what it does, by what it accomplishes, by the impact it has. And so Jesus says, you can't see the, the Spirit and where the Spirit comes and how the Spirit moves, but you can tell this unmistakably. The Spirit has an impact. And that's true today. You can't see the Holy Spirit here today, but you will see the Holy Spirit when a life is touched, when a heart is open, when someone changes, doing something they couldn't do for themselves. He says, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He says that, you must be born again. And that's something accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And I was, I was a child in the Methodist church, grew up going to Sunday school, confirmed when I was a teenager, and yet when I first heard this term, being born again, I was so confused, I had no clue what it was. I said, I do, I do not know what it means to be born again. And I'm going to struggle even to try to explain it to you today. But I can tell you this. Uh, I, I can't tell you what it's like to be married or to become a parent for the first time, you really have to experience it for yourself. But I know this, it's far better than anything you'd ever imagine. My life is more fulfilling, more filled with joy and purpose since I've given my life to Christ than I ever knew possible. And so he expects that Nicodemus knows some of this because he says you've got to be born of water and the Spirit. He's referencing the, the baptism that John the Baptist was practicing a baptism of repentance in water. But John the Baptist said, there's one coming who's greater than I. He'll baptize you not with just water, but with the Holy Spirit. And the water and the Spirit represent the two great things that happen in our lives when we give it to Christ. He washes us clean of sin. Symbolized even when we're baptized. It's, it's an it's a inner cleansing, a washing. And he doesn't leave us empty. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, he told this through a prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel said, there's coming a time when I will sprinkle water on you, you'll be clean. And I'll put my spirit in you so that you will walk in my ways. And he figures Nicodemus 
knows this, but Nicodemus really isn't understanding. How can this be, he says in verse 9. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? So Jesus says, let me tell you a story that you're probably familiar with. Remember when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, how they disobeyed God, how they complained about the food, how they wanted to go back to Egypt, and God sent these venomous snakes, and they were bitten, and many people died. And when they cried out to God, God told Moses to take a bronze serpent, elevate it on a, on a stake, hold it up, and everyone who would look upward would be healed of their illness. And then he says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The new birth will be accomplished by what happens when the Son of Man is lifted up. Now, he doesn't know what's going to happen to Jesus, but you and I know when we read this what happened because Jesus was going to die on a cross. He was going to die for the sins of people and that all who would look to him in faith would find healing from their sins. And then he says to Nicodemus, probably the most famous scripture in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. With that one statement, he dashes what Nicodemus knows about God and religion and life. See, Jesus is saying eternal life isn't found in rituals and in practices. It's found through faith in the one who gave his life for you. See, in our culture today, we have a really dominant attitude. It's all over the world that the way to find peace with God is through religion. And so we have just enormous number of religions all around the world. There are major ones like Judaism and Islam and Buddhism, and, and there are smaller ones. But even among those who call themselves Christians, many of us approach God from the realm of religion, about what we do, how we practice things. And Jesus is saying in this passage, that's not how you get right with God. It's not through your behavior. It's through your belief. No one is saved by exercising religion. We're only saved by experiencing a rebirth. How are those two so different? Well, religion is about my behavior, what I, what I do and what I know. and It looks good on the outside. But Jesus said being reborn is an inside job. It's what you believe. And when your heart believes the right thing and you trust in the right person, he changes your heart so then your behavior is affected by it. He says religion is what you do for God. Your knowledge, your study, your pursuits, your achievements. Rebirth happens because of what God does for you. He does, what, he does for you and me what we couldn't do for ourselves. He pays the consequence or the penalty for our sin. Religion is about doing enough to keep God off your back. It's this fear of judgment that if I don't appease God, God's going to be angry, so I better do things just to kind of keep him at bay. But rebirth is about inviting God into your heart, into every area of your life. In fact, you welcome him to come in and rearrange your marriage and your finances. You, you welcome God in. You don't want to keep God at a distance. Religion says it's for good people, people who are nice and want to be rewarded for the good things they do. Rebirth is for people who know they don't deserve good, but are grateful that God is good to sinful people. And then religious people often ask, have two questions. Do I have to go to church? Do I have to give? Do I have to read my Bible? Do I have to pray? 
And it, and it just exposes something that I think is very dark about us. Because, because rebirth is not about have to, it's about want to. And I think of a person who gets married, a, a young man who marries this woman of his dreams. And after a few weeks into the marriage, and there's some frustration in the relationship, he asked his wife, really? Do we have to eat together every night? Do we have to sleep in the same bed? Do we have to talk all the time? I mean, it's NCAA, you know, NCAA tournament time. And Do I have to give you gifts for birthday and anniversary and Christmas and Valentine's Day? Do I have to do all those things? And, and no, those weren't spoken in the contract at the wedding. But, but wouldn't you agree that if someone marries someone they want to spend the rest of their life with, that they would not be asking have-to questions? They'd be saying, I, I want to spend every moment I can with you. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm looking for opportunities. And I just want, uh, want you to think about that in your own life. When you got up this morning, it's Easter, so it's probably pretty easy today saying, I want to go to church today. But you know the test? The test will be next week. Because some of you are going to say, do I have to go to church today? And I'm telling you, that exposes that you're more about having a religion than being in love with the one who died for your sins. Because you, you just don't ask the question. You, you say, I want to. I want to. I want to take advantage of every opportunity to worship you, to serve you, to honor you with my life. That's the way it should look in a relationship where someone's life has been changed. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says that we should be different. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. and Behold, the new has come. And so Nicodemus hears this stuff about this rebirth, and I'm sure he's, he's wrestling with it. And for the next couple of years, while Jesus is carrying on his ministry, Nicodemus is listening intently. But his peers, the people he hung out with, are becoming increasingly hostile toward Jesus. They're becoming so angry with him. And so they decide they want to crucify him. And Nicodemus doesn't agree, and Joseph doesn't agree, but there, the will of the majority prevails. Jesus is nailed to a cross, and that cross is lifted up in the air. And you have to think, when the cross was lifted up, Nicodemus had to say, oh my goodness, that's what he was talking about, when the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. And all who looked to him in faith would find eternal life. And Nicodemus makes the decision that day, I will no longer be the secret disciple. And Joseph as well. They saw people who came up publicly in anger toward Jesus. And they had the courage to leave behind their comrades. And I don't know the repercussions of that that took place after. The Bible doesn't tell us. But that had to take a lot of guts to say, we are leaving the comfortable religious group we've been in. And we're making a statement that we believe in this Jesus. In fact, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Many of us need to hear that message today. I met a girl a couple weeks ago, and she grew up in a very religious home. In fact, for generations, her family has adopted a certain type of religion. But in high school, she said, it just didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand why we did what we did and why we believed what we believed, and so she fell away. And then someone invited her to come to Pikes Peak Christian Church. And she said the Bible started to make sense to her, and she eventually asked if she could be baptized. Now, she had been actually baptized as a little baby. That was part of her religion. But this time, she was saying, I need to make a decision for me and my relationship with God. And so she was baptized right over here in this baptistry as a statement of her faith. 
know, I, I believe that many of us need to be reminded of that. Because there's power in the resurrection. There's power in the resurrection that enables us to have the new birth. Mark finishes the story. Because this was Friday when they buried Jesus in the tomb, but Sunday came. It says when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, and by the way, Mary was a prostitute that Jesus had rescued. Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. It's kind of funny because they brought spices thinking, I don't think the guys did it the right way. Now, if any of you girls have watched us wrap Christmas presents, you know we're terrible at wrapping. They're going to redo. So they're coming there on, on that morning to rewrap the body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Glorious resurrection. The power of Jesus to not only raise the dead physically, but to raise us spiritually. I believe so desperately that many of us need that today. I know you're religious. You're here on Easter, the most religious day of the year. We get that. I just want to ask you, are you born again? That's the critical question. Because no one, Jesus said, will ever see the kingdom of God unless they experience the new birth. I know that freaks some of you out. But I'm just going to tell you, when you surrender your life to Jesus, only good things can happen.